Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. And we ask you to give us ears to hear what you'd have us to hear. Give us hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive. We may do as you'd have us to do. To ask your blessing in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. My very first reaction to reading the lessons for this week was to rejoice in the fact that God calls us to union with himself. And it is a true and full union that he calls us to. He's not calling us to an association with him. I enjoy watching sports. I watch sports and it's impossible to watch a game these days without being sort of overwhelmed by official sponsorships. Right? You may not know who wins the game, but you will know without a shadow of a doubt who the official toothpaste of Major League Baseball is when you watch a game, or the official personal injury lawyer of the Baltimore Ravens. And in these situations, there will be a, a company that will hope to receive some sort of benefit from associating its name with a more popular name. And so they'll enter into an agreement where we'll become the official sponsor of, of you and you'll pronounce it, we'll give you money, right? This is not what God wants. This is not what God's looking for in associating with his people, nor is it what he expects us to want from him. I will give you my name, you give me some worship and honor, and you listen to me. You scratch your back, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of association. Rather, he calls us, he desires a full and true union with his people. To show us the kind of union that he desires with his people, he gives us in the very beginning marriage and family, which in itself is the icon of the union that is found within the Holy Trinity. From the very beginning, marriage has been called an icon of the Holy Trinity. A man and a woman, both equally images of God, both equally of great value, both equally human, yet very different, come together in a covenant bond of love from which life springs up. This is a picture of God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all equally God, fully God, yet different, who are bound together in love and from whom life springs. And he gives us marriage as a picture of that. And then what does he do? He says, what I want from my people, the predominant image of his relationship with his people throughout Scripture is that of a marriage. That kind of union. That kind of union with my people. And even after we have brought destruction to the unity of the created order through which God Created through sin, God still works to bring unity with his people. 
Thus we have the Word in John 1, the Word that becomes flesh, this mysterious yet perfect union of God and man in the person of Jesus. And we find his baptism, which we talked about last week in John 1. And then in John, the progression of John, what do we find? He's baptized, and what does he begin doing? The first thing we find him doing is beginning to call people to himself. Calling people to himself. Andrew and Simon and Philip. We have this beautiful reading about Nathaniel today. In which he calls him, and Nathaniel's like, Really? This guy? This is the one? And Jesus says, I've known you for a long time. I remember seeing you. And I don't know what that means. It's a personal, intimate moment between Jesus and Nathaniel that we get some sort, of, some sort of insight into. But Jesus is saying, I know you. I love you. I want you with me. I want to have union with you. And it's a beautiful picture. What happens next immediately after this? Jesus blesses a wedding. He goes to the wedding of Cana and blesses it. I'm calling to people to myself. I'm calling them to a wedding. I'm calling them to a wedding, a union with me, into a family. What happens immediately after that? We have him calling Nicodemus and saying, you must be born again into my family. Immediately after that, we have John 4, the woman at the well. And we've, we've talked about that passage before. It is full of... Of what? Wedding imagery. It's full of wedding saying, I want you to be united to me. Not to other gods, he says. Not to other worship, false worship. United in the true and full worship in union with me. He is calling us to that union with him. We have the call of God in our Samuel passage. And he's calling here to Samuel, not just in judgment of Eli's house, but he's calling because he wants to make a way with his people to bring them back into union with him. And he's going to work through Samuel to help bring that to be. In Psalm 63, we have a reflection of what it should be on our end in our desire for that union with God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh also longs for you. What? Not to be in association with him, but to be in full union with him. And our 1 Corinthians passage also, I believe, expresses God's desire for union. Now this may seem strange for a passage that begins, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It may not seem like... God's really desiring union there. He's talking about here about people unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've just finished talking about how important this union is. But there is a popular idea of thinking, a line of thinking which says God is so desperate for union. He's so desperate to have people to be in union with, God, with Him. He's so desperate that he will take people on any terms, under any condition. He just wants to be in union with them. However you are, I just, I just want to be in union. So whatever your terms are, I'll take them. 
It is absolutely true, as I've been talking about at the beginning of the sermon, that God wants to be in union with him. But the idea that is very popular, that he'll take us on any terms in any way, doesn't matter. He just will have union with a whomever. That is not from God. It's not true. It's not in Scripture. There are things that are incompatible with a pure and holy God. There are things that deface and destroy the image of Him that He has put on earth. There are things that cannot be in union with God. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know this. He lists some of these things. Neither the sexually immoral, the word there is porneia, from which we get the words pornography, nor nor idolaters, nor adulterous, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor coveters, nor drunkards, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul is bringing this up here in 1 Corinthians for a particular reason. Some Corinthians had come to believe and to teach that Christianity was entirely, or at least primarily, a spiritual religion. An internal thing concerned with our immaterial, the immaterial part of us, the soul. And therefore, what we did with our bodies, the material part of us, was of little consequence. We could indulge our physical appetites because the body and spirit were separate things. And so we could just let our physical appetites go or curate them in such a way that would bring us the most happiness. And it didn't really matter what we did as long as we were spiritually worshiping God. And Paul emphatically says, no, This is not so. It may be indeed that in a fallen world, there is a struggle, a tension, a disconnect between our body and spirit. The immaterial part of us and the material part of us. That what I know to be inside to be good and true and is at war with the flesh. They aren't always on the same page But this fact does not mean that we can pick one to focus on and ignore the other. Or to say that one is important and the other isn't and it doesn't matter what I do. And by the way, in this case, Paul is talking about a situation in which the spiritual is magnified. And we say the body, what we do with the body doesn't count. It could be reversed. It could be that there are people who say, I'm only going to focus on the, the physical, the body. There's not really an immaterial part or it doesn't matter. What I do matters, and that's all. That is equally of error. But what Paul's talking about here is the reverse, where we elevate the spiritual and say that the body doesn't matter, or our actions in the body don't matter. Now, I said that Paul is talking about a specific circumstance in Corinth. Now, when commentators often say that, many times it's implied, well, Paul is is addressing a particular context, a particular thing that's happening at a particular place in time, and we can look at that and say, I hope, I hope they got the message, but that applies to them, 
And it doesn't apply to me. It's dated. It's a different context. It's not our situation now. I'm not a, a first century Corinthian. So I hope they learned. Um, and I'll, it's a historical fact, and we'll leave it as that. This is, a, I think, a disingenuous way largely to read Scripture. But regardless of that, the problem that Paul is dealing with is not a Corinthian problem. It is a human problem that is applicable in all times and all places. And it is particularly prominent today. We still, and I don't think it's, I think it's prominent at all times, but we always have this disconnect, this struggle between an immaterial part of us, the soul and the body. And we are always tempted to ease that tension and that struggle by elevating one and saying the other doesn't matter. We see it commonly, the extreme cases today that we find are cases of the transgender or transhumanist movements in which we say really gender is simply something that is completely immaterial and is a disconnect with the body completely or a transhumanist thing to where we say we really need to sort of overcome the body. But we need not even go to that sort of extreme to see how it plays out today. We commonly elevate our interior selves at the expense of the physical. We often hear things like this in the church. After all, it's what's inside that really counts, right? Meaning it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. It's what's inside that really counts. It doesn't matter what I was done with my body as long as my heart is in the right place. God says, yes, it does matter. Yes, it does matter what you do with your body. And we are wrong to make so sharp a divide between body and spirit and soul. Looking at the examples that Paul gives here, say gluttony. Gluttony is a sin of the soul, not just the body. Sex is not just satisfying a physical appetite. And we may not do it however we like. Nor is it a matter of simple consent. More is happening there. Paul gives us a couple of, I think, important reasons why it is important what we do with our body. It is important not to make so sharp a divide between soul, the immaterial, and the body. It begins with the resurrection. Listen again to verses 13 and 14. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. That God took on flesh shows the importance of the physical. Some of the earliest heresies in the church, matter of fact, so early that John himself is arguing against them. Some of the earliest heresies said that Jesus didn't have an actual body. Now, we are more likely to say that he had a body, but he wasn't God. In the whole, was he divine or was he human? We now are more likely to say he wasn't divine, but he was human. In the earliest heresies said, no, he wasn't human. 
He didn't have a body. He didn't have physical. And so John will say things like, we touched him. We saw him. We felt him. That he took on a body elevates the physical. That he bodily rose from the grave, and that was so important to his teaching and the teaching of his followers. That he rose bodily from the grave and promised to raise us bodily from the grave shows that his goal is to redeem the physical, not just the spiritual. After he rose, what did he, he went to his disciples and said, Thomas, touch me, touch me. I'm going to eat, give me food. I'm physical, I'm not just spiritual. And it is his goal, it is his, his goal to redeem all things, the physical things that he made. So the body is not an accident to be cast off, something we look just getting beyond. Yes, we may look for a new, a resurrected body, but it is not irrelevant. And Paul says, it is not something that we're just waiting to get past and therefore you can do what you want with it now. The resurrection reminds us of that. But Paul has more than the resurrection, which is something of a new creation in mind here. He also has the old or original creation in mind. While there are numerous sins that Paul could talk about, Paul quite pointedly highlights in this passage sexual immorality. And in doing so, he points back to creation, saying that God had certain intentions when he created the world that mark and shape the morality of our sexual activities. Once again, he writes, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Oh, excuse me, let me, let me back up. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body for, with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul is referencing here creation, saying the, the ethics for this go back to how God created the world. He goes back to Genesis chapter number 2. We've mentioned before that creation is an act of revelation. God showing himself. How does God make himself known? An infinite God, an approachable God, a God who does himself not have a body. How does he make himself known to we who are material, who are finite? the first thing he does is he creates a world that reveals himself. Creation is an act of revelation. We mentioned before that marriage and family is the greatest icon or picture of the Holy Trinity. Part and parcel of this is the sexual union of husband and wife, which God clearly puts into creation. So when Paul talks about sexual mores, he goes, let's go back to creation, how God made the world. And he said it was God's intention for sexual activity to be reserved for one man and one man, one woman within the covenant bond of marriage. Anything outside of that is using our bodies in a way that dishonors God, that defaces the image of him that he has put into creation, 
and is in essence telling lies about God with our body. We are saying things about him with our body that is not true. Paul says you can't do that. God says you can't do that. I created that as a picture of me. Do not deface that picture. Paul goes on to remind us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. In saying this, he is reminding us both once again. He's sort of tying up resurrection and creation in one, one picture. as temples of the Holy Spirit. We have talked about it before. The original temple, the place that was to house the worship of God, was creation itself. He made creation as a temple for his worship. When he, we are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk with him in newness of life, we enter into his resurrection. He gives us his life. He gives us his spirit. We house it. It is not just our body and our spirit. It is our body and his. We are that connected to him. Paul has pointed to creation and resurrection as our reasons we cannot do whatever we want to with our bodies. You also remember what we've talked about in the Old Testament. When God in the Old Testament is looking at Israel and he's giving them commands and he's saying, here's what you can and can't do. What are the reasons he gives for that? Here's why I can tell you what you can and can't do. There's two. There's always two. He refers to either one of them or both of them. He either points back to creation. I made you and therefore I can tell you what to do. Or he says, I brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I made you and I saved you. I've made you my people. You should follow my commands. Paul's doing the same thing. He's pointing to the resurrection. You have been saved through Christ. Your body is being redeemed through Christ and will be redeemed through Christ. You may not do whatever you want to do. I made you. I made you. I am the author and creator of all things. I made the world in a certain way that is to reflect me. You may not do with creation, my creation, whatever you want to do. I made you and I saved you. And so Paul ends the chapter with this. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, there's a way of hearing that and saying that God's getting his feelings hurt. That God gets in a huff and we don't do what he tells him to do. He made this world and we're not listening to him. This is not God standing with hands on his hips saying, I did not bring you into this world just to have you sass me like that. This is God saying, I love you and I want to be in union with you. I desire that. But you cannot have that union in any way that you want. There are some things that are not compatible with my holiness, with my goodness, with who I am. I desire it, and here's how we can have union. By you following the ways that I have created the world, the ways that I am redeeming the world and remaking the world. This is scary. 
Because as I read that list in the beginning, the things that Paul says, these things are not compatible. I highly doubt that there's many of us who, if we honestly listen to that, would not be convicted somewhere in there. Maybe not all of them, but there's something in there saying, ah, I've done that. I've struggled with that. I, I do struggle with that. And sometimes I fall. Does, what does that mean? I can't have union with God? Paul says we can. After giving us that list, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. You're washed, you're baptized. He made you clean. He makes you new. He does it. You can't. You were washed. It's a, isn't it something that happens to you? You were sanctified. You were justified. You are being made new. There is hope. Christ has made a way for us to be forgiven for our sins, to be made whole, to be in full union with Him. And we will live a life needing that constantly because we will still break those things. We will still sin. And we, will, but we, and we always have the ability to go to him and say, God, I did that and that was wrong. I did those things that are not compatible with you, that cannot be in union with you. Forgive me and give me grace to make, become new. And that is always open for us. What he wants from us is to acknowledge the truth, to desire it, to seek forgiveness when we break it, and to fight the good fight for it. What we may not do, what we may not do, is look at these things identify with them and say, it's okay. These things do represent God. God's okay with these things, and I will live the life the way I want to, and God will be okay with it. I will decide whether these things are right or wrong. I will decide the terms in which I have union with God. We'll make that association. Can't do that. He asks us to come to him, acknowledge him as God, submit to him, follow him, and when we sin, admit our sin and come back to him for grace. And that is there for us. We may rejoice that he has offered us union with him, that we may be with him, that we may be his family, but it is his family. And he is the one who decides, not decides, it's not even a decision, it's just a reality. There are things that cannot be in union with a holy God. He's told us those things. We are to hear and to respond. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.